0: Continuing our uh, study in Second Corinthians, uh, if you want to use the book that's in the pew, that blue book, that's the Bible, um, and turn to page 964. And as you're turning there, I could give a little bit of background for this passage. I know that we can go to sleep when we hear a little bit of history, but it's really important here to understand what had happened up to this point. Uh, So, Paul had three missionary journeys. First journey, if you know anything about the geography of uh, the Mediterranean Basin, it went from Judea and just circled around in Turkey a little bit, southern Turkey, came back to Judea. Second one, he goes all the way through Turkey, crosses the sea into what's Greece, across the sea. And in Greece, he went to Thessalonica and Philippi. We have the two letters there. And then he ended up in South Greece at Corinth. Stayed in Corinth for three months. Third missionary journey, he's back in the area. This time he's on the west coast of Turkey. And he gets a report from people in Corinth. And I won't go into all the details of where you find this. We're going to give you a paper that will summarize these things. And they tell him that things are not going very well in Corinth. That was the occasion of 1 Corinthians. And by reading 1 Corinthians, you can see some of the issues that came up there. Timothy took that letter. Timothy comes back and says, it's really bad there. It's an emergency. And Paul decides to drop everything and rush over to Corinth again for another visit. So... That's not even recorded in Acts, but we know it happened because at the end of Second Corinthians, he says, "This will be my third visit to you, and that the second visit, etc." So, either while Paul was there, or more likely after he left, after this second visit, somebody rose and challenged Paul, spoke out against him, uh, defamed him in a very specific way. So that he was attacked. And when that happened, Paul was thinking about another visit, but he thought, this time I'm going to write a letter. And it's called by many the severe letter. That's what you read about in chapter 2, this severe letter that he wrote. He wrote it because they had not dealt with this man who was attacking the apostolic ministry, who was then really undermining the very ministry of Christ among the Corinthians. And the church had done nothing about it. So a little later, he gets to Macedonia after uh, Titus takes the severe letter. And he's just waiting and waiting. And finally, he finds Titus in Macedonia. And Titus tells him, they responded. They responded. Then, from Macedonia, he writes 2 Corinthians. Okay? So 2 Corinthians is in part a response of Paul to the fact that they heard him in his severe letter and they dealt with with discipline, that person who had risen up against the church, basically, and Paul. So, beginning then in verse uh, 5, by the way, you you can refer back to that letter he wrote, the severe letter is the one in verse 3. I wrote as I did, so that we wouldn't have to do this face-to-face. He wanted to avoid, you know, physical confrontation with them. <clears throat> I wrote to you, verse 4, out of much affliction and anguish and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, and this is referring to that man, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ." so that we would not be outwitted or outsmarted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord there, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus, who was bringing the report. He just couldn't stand not hearing how they responded to the letter. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And, he, and then uh, later in chapter 7, he picks it up. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Let us pray. O Lord, bless us that uh, our meditations and all that we say will be pleasing in your sight and will give glory to Jesus Christ. Amen. I know many of you have seen uh, the movie Saving Private Ryan which opens with an old man uh, visiting the, American, uh, the Normandy American uh, Cemetery. And he goes t- through the cemetery, and suddenly in front of one particular grave, he falls on his knees, overwhelmed by emotion. At that point, you're looking in his eyes, and suddenly you're looking in the eyes of, of Captain John Miller, who's on a transport in Normandy. So it flashes back to Normandy itself. And we find out in the course of the movie that Private James Francis Ryan had three brothers that were all killed in World War II. And so it was discovered that there's a fourth brother, this Private Ryan, Private First Class, a paratrooper who now was missing in action. In fact, their mother found out on one day that all three boys had been killed. So the effort then was made to save Private Ryan. We must not let her lose her last and only son. So John Miller, as you know, played by Tom Hanks, took seven men and went to find Private Ryan. Much happened. At the end of the movie, uh, Miller was killed and... Ryan was there with him when he was killed. And suddenly you're looking in Ryan's eyes and it goes back. And those are the eyes of the old man. I thought I was mixed up in the first saw the movie. I thought I was going to go back and that was, he was, but then he died. And I thought, Oh, what's going to happen? Um, so it was the old man. And he was at the grave of captain John Miller who had given his life to save him. And he, Turned and asked his, his uh, wife, Have I been a good man? He wanted to know, Have I been worthy of this sacrifice that was made for me? The point is that this death for him had affected the whole of his life. You might say his death, in many ways, was formed by that life. And so we've been talking about how the death of Christ forms us. It transforms us into the image of the humble sacrificing Christ who gives him away himself away in astonishing in an astonishing manner and we are made more and more into the image of that Christ our lives are shaped and chiselled by the glory and majesty and power of the sacrifice of the god who made the whole earth <laughs> And so we're going to look at two further aspects of this shaping that the cross does. And I'm going to call it the gospel shapes the church's fellowship and that's verses 5 through 11 and then the cross or the gospel shapes the church's ministry. Now you could say either one because as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 the, the gospel or the good news is the word of the cross, or he calls it preaching Christ uh, crucified. So the gospel or the cross shapes our fellowship and it shapes our ministry. Now you'll notice how Paul pushes away... The personal attack that this man had launched on him, as he says in verse 5, He caused it not to me, but in some measure, he hurt the whole of the church. And the church in some way had exercised discipline after they received Paul's severe letter. And this probably meant a separation in some way of fellowship from this. Maybe he was excluded from the Lord's table. Maybe he was excluded from certain aspects of their fellowship. But it it had a, an effect in his life. Uh, you'll read further about it in chapter 7 when it talks about his repentance. Um, and so what's interesting here is Paul's concern for this man. And it shows that his, this was the concern he had all along and why he wanted the discipline carried out. It was because he loved this man. And now he's concerned that the discipline as it had been extended for too long a period and could cause him to be overwhelmed with sorrow, maybe even abandoning hope in Christ. And so he's asking them to forgive him and comfort him and reaffirm their love to him. The letter was just testing their obedience, their obedience to Christ, their obedience to Paul as a representative of Christ the testing in this way would they in with in this difficult matter of facing this man and he may have been a very belligerent man he may have been had a very strong personality were they going to do the right thing in this discipline would they entrust themselves to christ's oversight and authority in obeying him in this would they honor christ or deny him by honoring this man? Would they, as they claim that they love him too much to do that, which you'll hear many times when people face the prospect of bringing discipline, would they in reality act, act against this man by not disciplining him? Would they be scared of him instead of loving him? Would they fear him rather than fear Christ? Would they manifest Christ to him or hide Christ from him? Would they proclaim a false gospel of their own ease and comfort in dealing with this discipline matter? So apparently the man had come to repentance and he's begging them, of course, to restore him fully. And he says, I forgive even as you forgive. I join you in this forgiveness. I submit with you to this action. And it's for your sake. It's for the restoration of the body. It's for the protection of the body. And it's not so much because he had wronged me, but it's what it would do to you. It's what it would do to Christ's church if this was not resolved. And also, you can see how he's driving at this thing of, of in forgiveness in verse 11, so that we wouldn't be outwitted by Satan. We're not ignorant of his schemes. And he knows that forgiveness counters the schemes of the devil. Whenever the church seeks to do anything good even in this hard, difficult matter of discipline, where you think we're acting in love, we're trying to restore this person. Enter scheming Satan seeking to outsmart us. This is war language. There's maneuvering, there's seeking the advantage, taking, faking an assault from one direction, only to bring it from another. That's the kind of feel of Satan attacking. It's ambush. The Japanese outsmarted the U.S. at Pearl Harbor, right? They, and this is what Paul's saying we must guard against from Satan. And so when the church is seeking to do the right thing, especially when the church is seeking to do the right thing, Satan will scheme and try to outsmart us. That's why we had two church-wide Sunday school meetings Laying out the dangers and temptations of a church plant. You'd think it'd all be like, you know, all fun and games and this is great and all this. We went into it with fear and trembling. We went into it realizing that we're sinners, realizing what our hearts are capable of, how Satan would want to outsmart us in planting a church. We had to guard ourselves against jealousy and fear and judging one another. And we know that we do not always succeed. Satan's scheme would be that relationships could have been ruined by sinful attitudes and gossip and slander. Even hurt feelings and angry outbursts. His scheme would be to undermine the fellowship of the two churches. To cause bitterness to break out among both churches. And then both churches to take a downhill slide and finally be destroyed. That's what his scheme was. He doesn't put his plan on the shelf just because we plant a church or to bring loving discipline to a member in an effort to restore him or her to Christ. And so, here's his scheming. First, the man's sin itself. The second scheme is the church ignoring the discipline. The third scheme is that when they do exercise discipline, they'll be too severe in it. It's always out there, always seeking to attack at some point. And so in doing so, they if they did that, they wouldn't help the brother, but they would only add to his rejection and shame. And so this act of outward love for a sinning member that's supposedly seeking to restore a member, he could derail this so that, We might be exercising discipline, not in humility, but out of self-righteousness and pride. We might be looking down our nose at the person who offended, how we're better than them. We're the good people. He or she is not. We're in danger of acting not out of love, but out of love of our own authority and power, even out of jealousy or envy or revenge. Even in discipline, it can descend from the kingdom of God to the kingdom of me really fast. So Paul knows here that repentance and forgiveness cut off the schemes of Satan. His scheme is to separate and destroy. God's forgiveness outsmarts Satan. And then you throw in forbearance for one another and patience with one another and kindness and compassion and humility. And again and again, the schemes of the enemy can be thwarted. You know, we have enjoyed... A pretty long time of relative peace in our church. Of course, there are always skirmishes, always meetings along the way. We're all, you know, stumbling, weak people. But overall, I have seen God's peace manifest itself in greater and greater ways among our ministries, among our men, among our women, uh, among the elders and deacons, even among our staff. Jacob Tilton and I used to fight all the time, but now we only fight like every once in a while, right? I mean, it's not that bad. Anybody that knows me would know that the first interview, I founded the Jacob Tilton fan club. (laughs) And it's spread all, it's nationwide now, okay? So, So I would say to us, let's never be unmindful of this passage in verse 11, not to be outwitted by Satan, we are not ignorant of his designs. We fight an enemy that is beyond us. And we must stand on God's grace and power. So that's how the cruciform life, you see, uh, acts within the fellowship of God. Where we stand for righteousness and seek to restore. And we sacrifice whatever loss may happen in the, the danger of confrontation and yet do so with the very love of Christ for which he died for us. And It's it's interesting how the cross can shape us in so many ways to enable us to keep recovering each other and keep providing accountability and a place where we can fail and yet a place where we can confess sin and be a part uh, of one another. Well, verses 12 and 13... Are more, or kind of transition uh, to the next section. And there's some things to be said about that, but I'm going to try to wait for those uh, when we get to chapter seven. Um, but he does talk about preaching the gospel in Troas. He talks about the agony there, that he was still in agony over Corinth. He Even though there was an open opportunity, he just couldn't be at rest because he wanted to hear what was happening uh, about the Corinthians. Uh, And so he set off to, to Macedonia. And earlier he had talked about the severe affliction, even to the point of death. And here it seems to almost burst out of nowhere. But as we get into it, I think you'll see why Paul... Uh, says what he does in verse 14. He says here, and, and by the way, there's, there's starting in verse 14 all the way through the first part of chapter 7, there's this digression that I think was chosen by Paul as though we've got to get right to the gospel ministry. We've got to get right to uh, what ministering in Christ's name is all about. And we'll get back to my personal history in, in a little bit. So he cries out, thanks be to God, and he uses this striking analogy of triumphal procession. It's really a shocking reference. It's a direct reference to the victory pageant a general would celebrate upon his return from a successful foreign campaign. uh, Campaign. (laughs) As Murray Harris writes there were about 350 such triumphs recorded in the Greek and Roman uh, literature. So at the head of the parade would be the senators and the magistrates. Then would come the trumpets. Then would come the spoil of the world uh, of the war, gold and armor and whatever they recovered from the enemy. Uh, then would come the flutes. Then would come the white oxen that are going to be slaughtered at the pagan temple. And then would come the prisoners, the captives in chains. Some lowly soldiers, some mighty soldiers, even the king himself and other royalty would be in this group. And then finally would come the general or later the emperor himself. And he would have... um, he would have the garb of Jupiter. He would have a scepter in his, his left hand. And a slave held a crown over his head. And all of the soldiers would shout behind him, Hail, triumphant one! And as it was going up to uh, Capitoline Hill, uh, then siphoned off would be those higher prisoners, more royal and, and famous prisoners that would be executed. Why would Paul use such a metaphor as this? Why does he describe his ministry, their ministry in this way? Let me say first, it does not mean what the King James says. Okay? I hope you're not a King James person, but anyway. Um, Now, King James has excellent translation. But at this point, it says this. He causes us to triumph in Christ. He causes us to triumph in Christ. That would mean that Paul sees himself as the general conquering the enemy. No, actually, this means that Paul does participate in the procession, but he he participates as a captive of Christ, as a captive of Christ. It underscores both the victory of a conquering general and the humility of His captives. But unlike those captives in despair and are hopeless, Paul, made a captive through his own conversion on the Damascus Road, rejoices at being owned by this Lord. He calls himself regularly the servant or slave of Christ. And he says in 1 Corinthians 6 that. To the Corinthians, you are no longer your own, you're bought with a price. We are owned by this Lord Jesus. And so, here the NIV is accurate in its paraphrase who leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. ESV is fine, leads us in triumphal procession as you realize, oh, we're being led in this procession as captives. You see. He chooses to open this whole section about the ministry of the gospel with this startling picture because the false apostles took his weakness, took his uh, sickness at, at times, and his suffering as a sign that he was not a true apostle. And here he's aligning his suffering, he's aligning his humility with the glory of the triumphant gospel. So both are put together in this glorious metaphor. It doesn't deny that weakness, but it affirms it, connecting it to Christ's glorious, triumphal procession of the gospel. And so far from disqualifying Paul, as they would want to say, because of his weakness and suffering, this shows the genuineness of his ministry. He is living out the very humility and weakness and suffering of Christ. As Christ gave himself up to suffer, to save the world. So Paul and his companions give themselves up to suffering, all kinds of suffering, as he will later catalog for us, in order that the world might hear of this Christ and be saved. And so by using this powerful metaphor, Christ is I mean Paul is continuing his power in weakness theme, and this will run throughout the whole of the letter. God's power is made perfect in weakness. This is the cruciform life, identifying living out that cross in our own humility, in our own suffering, in our own love to others as we give ourselves away. Here it it talks about the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ that's being spread. Then it talks about the aroma of Christ to God. And then again that word fragrance. First of all, there are two probably references here. First is to the incense that the... Captives would spread as they walked. And so we who've been bought by Christ's blood are spreading this this incense or or this fragrance and aroma of Christ by living out and speaking the gospel. But also these words, these two words taken together are used at least 40 times or close to 40 times in Leviticus and Numbers to describe the offerings that are made, the burnt offerings and other offerings in the Old Testament. It says they will be a fragrant aroma to God. And those two words are used to describe describe Christ's sacrifice in Ephesians 5. Where he offered himself up for us a fragrant aroma. And then in Philippians 4, Paul receives the gift the Philippians have given him. And he says, I've received it. a, A sacrifice, a fragrant aroma to God. But here we are the fragrant aroma. We are the sacrifice. And notice, the aroma is to God. It's to God. Even no matter what people's response to it, the fact that we would give ourselves away and give ourselves for the sake of Christ is an aroma to God as we proclaim and make known the gospel of Jesus Christ so it's not the fragrance of conversion necessarily, the fragrance of someone being saved. It's the fragrance of the message itself. It's the fragrance of the life lived itself. This is how we give ourselves up as sacrifices to God. And it is, it is unsettling and it's weakening when he says that this aroma... Is among those who are being saved, and it's among those who are being peri- who are perishing. And it continues from one; it's a fragrance from death to death. The other, a fragrance from life to life. So this same astonishing fragrance of God's grace and love brings life, but it also brings death. And knowing that this is happening. Knowing the cataclysmic encounter that the gospel has with every person that hears it. And the destinies that are determined by people's reaction to it. Knowing that you're called to be a part of that determination. Paul says, who can do this? Who's sufficient for this? Who's adequate for this? One translation, who is equal to such a task? Ben Dice, as many of you know, recently had a bout with Guillain-Barre syndrome. He was losing the function of his body, and it can even begin to affect organs. Uh, Two treatments, plasma exchange or immunoglobulin therapy. But some people have adverse reaction to the treatment, so I've read. And so, in the case of the gospel, right, in the case of a person there can't help what their body does, but in the case of the gospel, which is the only life-giving therapy for the condition of human sin, if you have an adverse reaction to it, that is, if you reject that gospel and turn away from it, then you will die in your sin. The wages of sin is death. This is the one life that is being brought to people. It's like offering a medicine to a tribe in South America that has succumbed to a deadly and highly contagious disease. Some receive the medicine, others refuse the medicine. The medicine itself is excellent. It's formulated by years of research and development. It works marvelously to cure the disease, but it will be your death if you don't take it. Not taking it will kill you. And that's the death unto death of the gospel. You will die if you refuse it. And that's why right on the heels of such a momentous thing, such a gripping historical event for every human being that he's dealing with. Paul says, we are not like those who peddle this gospel. Get the feel of that. That's the first thing that comes to his mind. Now he's, He's going against his opponents here. We are not those, like, this is, this is the word for a retail seller, a huckster, but everybody knew he will try to make his product look as good as it, 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 it can look, and he probably isn't telling you the truth. That was just the way it was in the market. A wine seller, and you know he's going to mix that wine with water and not tell you about it. So selling the gospel... Selling the gospel, selling it for financial gain, a little bit of that in our culture, selling it for popularity or influence or for one's reputation or to take advantage of others with the trust that is given. In these cases... The gospel is denied by the very character of the person who declares it and eventually the gospel itself is compromised because the criteria becomes what do people want to hear? What will draw them? What will give us crowds? What will give us money and lots of it? That's peddling the gospel. I'm going to use it for other ends. I don't want to sacrifice for it except to work long hours to make sure the show is good so that we get a lot of money. And, of course, several things are at the top of the list for compromise. Don't preach about hell and judgment. Don't preach about sin. So one very popular minister has said, publicly, I just don't mention sin. It's negative. It's not affirming. They claim that this is not loving. And yet, as we know, Jesus spoke of judgment more than anyone else. In one passage, he says, how... How do you being if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children? How much more will the father and you think? Well, wait a minute. Well, I mean, I've done some wrong things. I'm not perfect, but evil really? That's how Jesus talked. Imagine you're having lunch with a doctor and he tells you he's just diagnosed someone with cancer and then he tells you, but I'm not going to tell him how serious and deadly it is. It's so negative. Cancer is such a negative word. I just don't want to tell them that. And you know that would not be the kind thing to do. That is not love. The New Living Translation <clears throat> translates 2 Timothy 4 this way 4 3. A time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. And I, as every leader in this church, are faced with that temptation. Every encounter, every confrontation, everything we do... We, we're tempted and sometimes we fail. We're, the elders have just started a book that John recommended to us by Rico Tice called Honest Evangelism. This is one of the things he talks about. Being willing to suffer for Christ by taking the risk of making the gospel known to your neighbor. From meeting them and befriending them and opening your home to them to listening to them to entering into their story to serving them to the right time or probably multiple times when you will speak to them of Christ. That's where we give ourselves up as a sacrifice for Christ. Right? Where we in humility and brokenness entrust ourselves to the care of Christ as we lose ourselves in whatever may happen to us. As we minister to our neighbor. So let me just ask this. And really the answer here. I I, I say this. But the only way we can be that. The only way we can do that. Is the grace of God. Is for his salvation to extend to that point. To save me from my cowardice. Save me from my fear of man. To save me from my love of comfort. And I love comfort. Save me from it. You know, you don't stick your toe in the water if you're whitewater rafting. That's not whitewater rafting. Stick your toe in the water and say, I've been whitewater rafting. There were rafts out there and there were rapids and I was at the Colorado River. I went whitewater rafting. You don't just stick your toe in, Right? That's not what you go to do when you go white water rafting. And the gospel doesn't call you to stick your toe in its water and to wade around in its shallows. That's not the gospel. You're in a raft. You're caught up in the powerful work of the Spirit who is renewing your life. You're caught up in the triumphal procession as as a slave and captive of Christ. He's enabling you more and more to adore Christ. He's enabling you to more and more give yourself away to others in the church, outside the church. It's scary. It's dangerous. It's gripping. It's exhilarating. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, I need your salvation. I need your salvation so that I will be saved from my fear of people, my lack of love for people, my desire to be left alone, my desire to be comfortable, my desire, in the words of our opening confession, Lord, which says it so well that there our glory has been our comfort rather than your son's cross. We've craved the fellowship of those already like us rather than the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. We've often worked to save our own lives rather than lose our lives for the sake of the good news. Oh, Lord, rescue us by your powerful grace. You alone can do it. Amen.